Airway Part Duh Part Two Supplemental Oxygen Who gets Now listen to me There's a lot of times I mean I hate really talking about Or teaching for a test I really like to talk about And teach for things you need to know To be a good EMT But there's a little bit of break in reality Sometimes when when you're talking about The real world And when you're talking about this test For now While you're in the testing process In the initial education process And then going through the testing uh, Who's going to get oxygen? Pretty much everybody. Your decision is how you're going to give it to them. Okay? And when you're looking at their breathing, what's that one word that you're trying to determine? Adequate. adequate. Is it adequate or not? If their breathing is not adequate for some reason, maybe the tidal volume's not sufficient, or maybe they're breathing too slow or too fast or, or whatever, um, no matter what's making it inadequate, if it's inadequate, How do you give them oxygen? If their breathing is adequate, but there's a problem of some sort, how do you give them oxygen? Non-rebreathing mask. One of these units right here. And we're going to talk about this. Non-rebreathing mask. At your level right now, if you're giving oxygen to someone whose breathing is adequate, non-rebreathing mask is your device of choice. In reality, paramedic shows up on scene, what's the first thing they're going to do to this? Take it off. And they're going to put them on one of these, a nasal cannula. Okay, let them do it. Don't get offended by it. But for right now, and in reality, when you're at work, your protocols may give you parameters for when to use this or when to use that. But this ain't the real world. We're talking registry. Inadequate, how do we give them oxygen? Adequate, how do we give them oxygen? When do we not... When do we use this in the testing process? No, we don't. no there's all there's very few always or nevers. If they can't tolerate a mask. If they can't tolerate a mask, that's when you give them a nasal cannula. Alright? Who has never seen one of these? Okay. All right. Supplemental oxygen, it says to administer to any patient with potential hypoxia. And how will you know that they have potential hypoxia? That, okay, that would be one indicator. What's the quickest way to tell? Color, color, temperature, and condition of the skin is always the first dead bang giveaway. But keep in mind... Breathing should be effortless. As I'm looking at all you guys sitting in your chair, I'm not really noticing how or if you're really breathing at all because it's effortless on your part. 
I can assume that you are because you're conscious and alert and awake and talking to me, right? So, if they look like they're struggling to breathe, that's hypoxia. Or it's going to result in it anyhow. Alright? What if someone appears to be breathing normally but is telling you that they're having a little difficulty? Give them oxygen. That's right. Give them oxygen. Treat the patient not the machine is something you need to always keep in your mind. Even when you go through paramedic school, particularly when you go through paramedic school, you tra- treat the patient, not the machine. If you put a pulse oximeter on their finger and it reads out, man, they got a 100% saturation of oxygen in their blood, but they're telling you they're struggling, you treat them, not that machine. If they're a diabetic and the, blood, and the glucometer shows between 80 and 120, which is normal, but they're saying they don't feel right, they think their sugar's off. You treat that person, not that machine. If paramedic puts them on a cardiac monitor and they're saying they have chest pains, but the ECG looks perfectly normal, you treat that person, not the machine. You treat the chest pains, okay? Uh, oxygen uh, reduces pain and further damage. It could a little bit of oxygen may even help with a little bit of nausea sometimes. So there's a lot of benefits to it. But understand this right now: oxygen is a medication. Now it's weird to think about because it's floating around in the air right now, and you don't have to have a prescription to take none of it, right? But oxygen, when you apply oxygen, it is definitely looked at as a medication. And it's one of the medications you need to know. Okay? Never withhold oxygen from a patient who might benefit from it. Name me one person that would not benefit from oxygen. Well, they de- well, depends on how long they've been dead, I guess, G. If they just went down, they really could. They got Rick No. No, take JC himself to fix that one. So, but never withhold oxygen. All cells in the human body require two things to produce energy. They are what? Sugar, Sugar and oxygen. So when you put somebody on a non-rebreathing mask and a paramedic shows up and yanks it off and looks at you like you got three heads, you just say, okay. Don't worry about it. All right. Oxygen cylinders. Oxygen cylinders, you need to check that the cylinder is labeled for medical-grade oxygen. How will you know a cylinder has medical-grade oxygen in it? A label might, but what if there's no label on it? Green top, or maybe the whole thing's green, right? Now, now, let me ask you this. Has anybody ever seen cylinders that welders use? What color are those? Some of them are blue. But are any of them green? Okay, which one? The oxygen. So, medical grade oxygen is what we're talking about. And that is a correct answer. The green and the label should give it away. Okay. But there's something else that's going to make sure you don't make a mistake. Check that the cylinder is labeled for medical oxygen. 
Liquid oxygen is being increasingly used. Handle the cylinders carefully. Why is it important to handle a cylinder carefully and make sure it's properly secured in your apparatus before you ride down the road? What happens if you knock that top off of that? What is it now? It is what you call a missile. That is correct. Make sure uh, correct pressure regulators firmly attached before transport. So how do you make sure you have the, the right cylinder and the right regulator? What does the regulator do? So it's safe to say then that the amount of pressure that's in this cylinder, if you hook it straight up to somebody's mouth or nose, then it's probably going to cause some trauma, right? This reduces the pressure to where it's palatable, if you will, for the human body without blowing a lung. Okay. All right, you need to know dim cylinders. Dim cylinders, D, E, and M. Where's my black pen G game? You need to know about the D cylinder. You need to know about the E cylinder. And you need to know about the M cylinder, for sure. D cylinder holds how much oxygen? 350 what? Liters. The E cylinder. M. So, is that all of them? What did I skip? All right. Just know these are pretty much the hospitals, places like that. You need to know the D, E, and M, and of course the super D, but what you need to know is a Super D cylinder holds 400, not 500. I can't help what the book does. It's 350, 4, 625, and 3,000. And three thousand. The super D holds what? Four. Okay. So I want you to go ahead and know something too. You need to write these down if you haven't. Man, I'm still going through puberty. You need to know cylinder constants as well. A constant. 
How many of y'all know how to figure friction loss in your fire hose? Raise your hand. Come on now, I'm going to ask you a friction loss question, so be sure. John, you good? <laughs> how do you figure friction loss? Just tell me basically the formula. Huh? I told you, be sure. There's a number you need to know that's associated with each size hose, right? That number's called the what? Huh? It's not the constant. Coefficient. Now, here you go. Now, trigger it in your brain. Different hose sizes have different coefficients, right? Different oxygen cylinders have different constants, okay? I want somebody to look in the book and tell me what's the constant for a D cylinder. 0.16. What's the constant for an E? Constant for an M? You need to know that a D cylinder holds 350 liters. And the cylinder constant is what? 0.16. An E cylinder holds how much? And the constant is? The M cylinder? Constant? Okay. You need to know those. Not memorize them. You need to know them. Why do you need to know that? How long will a cylinder last? You need to be able to know how long a cylinder will last for your registry test. But now that's a skill you need in real life too, right? Because if you've got a patient on a cylinder... And you know you've got a 30-minute transport time, and that cylinder ain't going to last but 15 minutes. You know you're going to have to swap out en route, right? So you want to make sure you have everything you need. So that being said, what is the formula for calculating the duration of an O2 cylinder? All right, so here you go. Wait a minute. Cylinder pressure minus what? Minus 200 psi. Minus safe residual. What else? Times the constant divided by liters per minute. Flow rate. Liters per minute. Write this formula down. You need to know this formula, but we'll talk more here shortly. I digress. The pin indexing safety system. That is how you are guaranteed to know that you have a medical grade regulator and you're hooking it to medical grade oxygen. If you look right here, 
you see the two little holes and the one big hole? That tells you medical grade oxygen. And in the regulator, you see the two little pins and then the big port for the oxygen right in there? That tells you medical grade regulator. If it's not medical grade in both cases, you can't look it up. Simple as that. Okay? But if you take this, line up the little holes and the big hole with a seal. With a seal. And a lot of most of the seals, of course, you don't nobody donates updated crap to an education program, alright? So <laughs> most of the seals are built into the regulators now and you wouldn't have to worry about them. But it's the old one. <laughs> then you tighten the little T-handle down, hand tight, and that's how you put it on. And if it don't fit in there, and it doesn't look like that when you're done, something's wrong. You've got something that you shouldn't have. Okay? <clears throat> Pin indexing safety system uh, is followed by industry. It prevents oxygen regulators uh, being connected to carbon dioxide cylinders, always check that the pinholes on the cylinder exactly match those on the regulator. Don't be trying to put no square pegs in a round hole, right? If it lines up and fits, it'll be obvious. If it doesn't, then you've got something you don't need. Okay? Flow meters, where do you typically see these? Hospitals are maybe even mounted on the wall of the ambulance too, right? Usually permanently attached. EMS providers must be able to administer oxygen appropriately to a patient. Oxygen cylinders are usually green, white, or chrome. Make sure to confirm the presence of an O-ring. Then carefully attach the regulator and secure it tightly by hand. With the face of the gauges pointing away from people, open the cylinder. Open and close the valve quickly to blow out debris. Be sure to check the tank pressure. The pressure is measured in pounds per square inch, or PSI. It is important to read the pressure accurately to within 100 PSI. Attach the oxygen connected tubing to the flow meter and ensure that oxygen is flowing through the delivery device. When the reservoir bag is full, administer the oxygen to the patient at a rate of 10 to 15 liters per minute when using a non-rebreathing mask. Just do 15. All right, a couple things was pointed out in that video is... The regulator itself, once you have it hooked up, this is your pressure gauge. Once you put the regulator on and you take an oxygen wrench and you open the cylinder, lefty-loosey, righty-tighty, right? Left to open it. 
this will pop up and show you how much pressure is in the cylinder. That's that cylinder pressure. This here allows you to dial to the desired liters per minute for that patient. Okay, And we'll talk about the what's acceptable liters per minute ranges for nasal cannula and non-rebreather here shortly. But this is your pressure gauge that tells you what's in the cylinder. This is your uh, flow meter that allows you to dial up the liters per minute that that patient needs. Y'all with me? All right, it says here that oxygen does not burn or explode. So it's completely safe, right? Negative. People, you know, was talking with Alex earlier about COPD. Uh, some people are on oxygen 24-7, right, at home because of some of these disease processes. So you show up to their home, they've got the nasal cannula in their nose and oxygen tubing that runs all through the house, Okay. Smoking a cigarette. You take, listen, and I could demonstrate this, but I choose not to. Because I don't want you to ever do it. But if you take this nasal cannula like that, and you take a cigarette, and you hold it up to that oxygen coming out of that nasal cannula, what do you have? It's called a torch. <laughs> And it's going to be just like a torch. And what's this cannula made out of? Plastic or some some other materials that will burn. So all of a sudden, it's burning. It's like a it's like one of them long fuses for a stick of dynamite. And it goes back to this pressurized cylinder. You see what is ahead? With the big flame on the side? Yes. Sir. It is an oxidizer. What are the three things that fire has to have? Uh, oxygen, fuel, and heat. Bam. <laughs> Bam. Bam. Last time I demonstrated it, it was when I, a long time ago when I was first started teaching first responder classes. I had a group of firemen on the back porch of this trailer that we were using to teach in the class. And I did the demonstration. I was showing the torch. You know, it was going about ooh, and all of a sudden <laughs> that cannula started burning and it was running back to the cylinder. I ain't seen fire in the moon so fast. <laughs> <laughs> they were failing. I was like jumping off the porch. So I just went, and it was all good. But so don't do that. That could be bad. So, so that being said, what's your number one priority on every call you go on? Your safety. So I would highly recommend to you, and people get very offended if you try to tell them what to do in their home. You come to 1635 Moore Road and try to tell the kids something, I'm going to show you the line, that line right out there on that road to go get on. And people are going to do the same for you. But... That being said, in a very polite way, if you show up and someone's hooked to oxygen and they're smoking, please explain to them they need to put that cigarette out at least while you're there. It could be badder than normal. So, 
Could you tell them, like, be, like, straight up with them and tell them, like, there's a chance you could blow up and die if you keep cleaning a cigarette? Oh yeah, be honest. Well, I would tell them, yes, in a very polite way, but are they going to pay attention to you? Because they've been doing that for years, right? It ain't happened yet. Everything's good till it ain't. What, what, what's that, that one, uh, and I can't even remember, it might have been Floyd Mayweather, I can't remember which boxer it was, or... But he said, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the face, right? Yeah. Don't get hit in the face. <laughs> yeah. All right. So look here. Oxygen does not burn or explode. However, the more oxygen that is around, the faster the combustion process is. It's a strange concept for me, but what is fire in its very slowest form? What is fire, really? It's just oxidation, right? Fire in its very slowest form is what? Rust. Fire in its very fastest form is what? Explosion. A huge problem. So, a small spark can become a flame in an oxygen-rich atmosphere, and a cigarette could definitely be a torch. Keep possible sources of fire away from the area where oxygen is in use. Make sure the area is adequately ventilated. And listen, I want everybody to write this down because this will be a National Registry test for you. And it makes zero sense when you apply it to the real world. But in concept, it makes sense and it will be on your test. If, you have a, if you're delivering oxygen to someone that's in cardiac arrest, and since their breathing is not adequate because they're in cardiac arrest, you're providing ventilation via bag valve mass, right? But you're giving it's attached to oxygen. Before you defibrillate or you allow the AED to shock the patient, turn off your oxygen. That's going to be on your test. And in concept, that makes sense. In reality, it never happens. All right, oxygen delivery devices. Protocol usually limits delivery devices to non-rebreathing masks, bag mask devices or bag valve masks, BVMs, or nasal cannulas. You may encounter other devices during transport between medical facilities. You may have a uh, something that's called a Venturi mask that... You rarely find in the street anymore, but it may be on your test. But a vin, vin, for now, just write down that a Venturi mask is used to deliver oxygen for someone with COPD. We're stuck on COPD this morning. V-E-N-T-U-R-I. V-E-N-T-U-R-I. COPD patients, chronic obstructive pulmonary. And without getting into a COPD lecture full blown here, the problem with these patients is we breathe because of a buildup of carbon dioxide, right? These people normally function with elevated levels of carbon dioxide, so they breathe on the hypoxic drive, which means they breathe due to a insufficient oxygen, right? Well, if you give them too much oxygen, then they're going to quit breathing over an extended period of time. 
So Venturi masks limits the amount of oxygen that patient can get, no matter what the dial set on. Okay. Non-rebreathing masks are the preferred device to deliver oxygen for someone who is breathing adequately but is in need of oxygen. Okay? You have a reservoir bag, mask in a reservoir bag. Ensure that the reservoir bag is full before placing the mask on the patient. Make sure the bag stays inflated. All right. Nasal cannula consists of two prongs that fit into the nostrils. And trying to figure out whether it's upside down or not, just look at the prongs. A lot of them will be curved. If they're curved, obviously, they should curve down. Shouldn't curve up, right? That's just not a natural fit. But if they're straight and not curved at all, a lot of times they'll be a little, like this one, like a little tab on it. Just put the tab toward the nose. And listen to me. You don't wrap anything around a patient's neck. Don't do it. And the nasal cannula, if it's placed properly on a patient, will not go around the patient's neck. I'm going to show you here in a minute on the mannequin back there the proper way to put a nasal cannula on because everybody's going to come up before we leave today and walk me through hooking up oxygen, flowing oxygen through a nasal cannula and a non-rebreathing mask. And I found a face mask, so I'll probably get you to show me how to do uh, a face mask properly. I, I, I say it, I say it will. What's this? Which prevents what? Can't argue with that. It prevents vomitus from getting up in your mouth. <laughs> Which That's makes it the mouth. most important part in there. All right. We can, we can, put a, we can uh, do the nasal cannula too, right? All the reason I'm asking is because every time uh, we use the example earlier, you said we would put the normally breathing, and that man would come yank off of it. Yes. And if in, in if Spalding County, if, if that's what your employer wants you to do, go ahead with the nasal cannula, right. then by all means, go ahead. I'm talking test taking here right. now. But I will say this. I've been putting people on oxygen since, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but year of our Lord, 1991, I've been putting people on oxygen pretty consistently. I've never seen somebody stop breathing in the amount of time we're going to have them. It, it will make them stop breathing if they get too much oxygen in their, in their COPD, okay? It will. But I've never seen it happen in the amount of time that we have the patient, okay? Long-term oxygen use, I think, is where it's more likely to be seen. But now that being said, your next shift, you may see it. You know, I... It just depends on the person, you know. Uh, it says right there, nasal cannula consists of two prongs that fit into the nostril. It is limited use in the pre-hospital setting. Break from reality, because that's the primary thing that they use in the pre-hospital setting anymore. But it's mainly used for patients who will not tolerate a non-rebreathing mask. 
For your test, that's what you need to know. Partial rebreathing masks, just you're not going to see any of those, but just know a partial rebreathing mask um, is very similar, obviously, to a non-rebreathing mask. It says, except there's no one-way valve between the mask and the reservoir. Patients rebreathe a small amount of their exhaled air. Just know, if you see... And in reality, push another mask. I thought I brought two masks out here. You see how that one has the vents on the side with nothing on it? And this has a little flap on the vents on the side. If the flaps are there, that kind of retains your expired air a little bit more. So you partially rebreathe what you have exhaled. So you're not going to see them. You're not going to be tested on them. But just know that's the difference. And again, old stuff gets donated. The Venturi mask, I talked to you about this. Who Who's going to have the Venturi mask? And that's not a Venturi mask, I don't think. It's not. That's just not a rebreather, I believe. But a Venturi mask is going to be a mask that's going to have this tube on it and, and oxygen hooks. And at the end of the tube, you insert a canister based on the, the, the clinical or medical history of that particular patient and the tubes are color coded and I've got one and I'll dig it out next break and I'll just let you look at it but depending on which canister you put at the end of that tube will dictate how, what percent concentrations they get okay tracheostomy masks patients with tracheostomies do not breathe through their mouth and nose what is a tracheostomy the little hole is called a what? Stoma, right? It's a stoma. And the little, hopefully they've got a little plastic piece in that stoma, right? Everybody write this down. All oxygen delivery devices have a universal size. Regardless of the manufacturer, they're all the same size. And they are 15 slash 22 millimeters 15 slash 22 millimeters how's that possible how can it be two sizes at once how can it be two sizes at once no you've got outside and you've got inside diameter okay outside diameter and inside this, whoo, this thing's been in there, man. The inside diameter is 15. The outside. Outside is 22. See that? Outside. And I tell you what, let me grab one of my little 
other devices. Outside, back valve mask, the face mask is 22. King Airway, which is one of the blind insertion airway devices that we'll learn in advance, is 15. So 15 slash 22, universal oxygen delivery device size regardless of the manufacturer. So the stoma and the, and the tracheostomy that they have in their neck, what do you think the dimensions of that is? 15 slash 22, right? So basically, it's going to be real similar to that size right there with a strap around their neck holding it in place. So if they're inad breathing inadequately, you can just come up and hook your bag valve mask directly to the tube in their neck. Huh? Any questions about any of that so far? All right, stretch yourself. One more thing I want to point out about these uh, tracheostomy masks, the stomas or whatever. Sometimes you'll show up and they will have just the tracheostomy. There'll just be a hole in their neck. There's no plastic. What size would that be? 15, 22? All right. Sometimes you're not going to have that. If you needed to ventilate this patient, let's just say they were in cardiac arrest. How would you get a good seal? How would you provide your ventilations, you think? You would take the adult bag and get an infant mask, put it on there, and get a seal around the hole in their neck with that infant mask. Okay? That's what you call a little bit of street knowledge. Right? That ain't in the book. You should carry an infant mask. But if you do not carry... Hypothetically speaking, if you do not have an infant mask... You're not going to be able to get a good seal on that patient and ventilate them. Or any infants you come across, you would not be able to ventilate them. So, so you do your best, yes. Listen, you can only play with the toys that you have, right? If you don't have it, if you're not provided it, there's nothing you can do about that. Did you hear what I said? You can only play with the toys you got. Okay? But now... I would say, just completely hypothetically speaking, if I found myself in that position, I would at least ask for one. If you ask, they might get you one. I don't know. May not. But at least then you know you've asked. So when you come up on that infant or that person with the tracheostomy, you'll know, mm, I don't have it, but at least I asked for it. You know what I mean? Let me tell you something about me. I'm the type of person. I love to sleep. Alright, this fits in, believe it or not. I love to sleep, but I can't sleep if something's eating on my mind. I gotta have a clear conscience. So, if I was in that situation, didn't have what I needed, if I never asked for it, that'd keep me awake at nights. You know what I mean? Moving on. Our oxygen humidifiers. This is what I alluded to earlier to where, cause how much, how many, how many liters per minute do you flow through a nasal cannula? One to, One to six, and you're delivering what percent concentrations of oxygen? Okay, but if you've got somebody on nasal cannula and they start saying their nose is burning, that's because you're drying out the mucosa, right? 
That is one application or one purpose for humidified oxygen. Okay? Oxygen humidifiers are used by some systems, uh, usually indicated for long-term oxygen therapy. Those people at home that are on oxygen, usually they don't have a cylinder like that unless they leave the house, right? They've got a machine that generates it. You probably see something like that hanging on the outside of it. How would you Of the actual, like the the yeah. liquid, yeah. you don't. Okay. You you control the liters per minute that you're flowing, okay. and it, it just passes through the water is all it's doing. Uh, and again, other medical conditions like croup, epiglottitis, bronchiolitis, things that we'll talk about later on. They're they're also um, indications for humidified oxygen as well. Patients who, patient who is not breathing needs artificial ventilation close to 100% supplemental oxygen. If they're not breathing, you need to bag them, right? Breathe for them. Don't worry about CPAP yet. When you read this chapter, don't read about CPAP. I'll tell you, that stands for continuous positive airway pressure. That's an advanced thing. Don't cloud your mind. We'll get to it in the advanced section. <coughs> But I will say this, if you have a patient, some people actually are on automatic ventilators at home. It's breathing for them. But whether you pick them up at home or whether you're transferring them from one hospital to another, if they're on a ventilator and anything happens to that ventilator and it malfunctions and you don't know how to correct it or if, if there's some issue with that ventilator, what can you always do? Unhook it and bag them. So... Don't be freaked out if you pick up a patient that has a ventilator on it. Oh, what if it stops working? Well, okay. It's easier if it continues to work, and it's best if you're familiar with that equipment. But if not, unhook them and bag them. Simple as that. What should you do first? Suction and oral pharyngeal airway, right? Before opening the airway, consider the possibility of a cervical spine injury. If no spinal cord injury is suspected, open the patient's airway using the head tilt chin lift maneuver. If you suspect a spinal injury, don't look at that. The jaw thrust maneuver. Don't look at that. Masks should be chosen to fit the patient without air leakage, so make sure that you have the correct size mask and bag for the patient. Attach the mask and the bag to the one-way valve. Attach to an oxygen source. Create a proper mask to face seal. Begin ventilations as soon as the mask is sealed and assess for... C.E. clamp. 
Ventilate at the proper rate and volume for that patient. Pay close attention to ensure that each ventilation is of the appropriate volume and of a consistent rate. Allow adequate exhalation between each breath. Each ventilation should be delivered slowly and easily, lasting one full second. For bag task ventilation involving one rescuer, use the seat clamp hold. Again, just like the non- is compromised or the patient is unconscious, consider using an oral pharyngeal or nasal pharyngeal airway device. Otherwise, your ventilations are going to go in the stomach. Okay. Just like the non-rebreathing uh, mask, uh, the bag valve masks have a reservoir bag. The bag should feel when you when you hook it off. Okay. But unlike the uh, non-rebreather, if it doesn't feel, there's not really anything that you can reach up and push to make it feel. It, it should feel on its own, okay? Um, what's the most effective way for one rescuer to provide ventilations? Connected to supplemental oxygen, right? They had two rescuers there, right? So two or more of the bag valve masks. And regardless of how you're providing ventilations, whether it be mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, which I do not recommend without a barrier, pocket mask or bag valve mask, or the FROPVD, it doesn't matter how you're providing ventilations, what's your indication that, you, that you're doing it right? All right, good deal. All right, here we go. Here's something important to point out. Artificial ventilations are not the same as normal breathing. We breathe under, it, it's a negative pressure concept, right? We're creating negative pressures inside the thorax so air rushes in, right? We're kind of like pulling the air in. If we're providing artificial ventilations, that's a positive pressure concept, PPVs. Positive pressure ventilations. When we do it ourselves, it's negative pressure. Uh, so therefore, when you ventilate in a patient, you have increased intrathoracic pressures. And this could actually decrease venous return of blood to the heart. Because why does anything move in the human body? Pressure gradients. And if you're building up pressure inside the thorax, it may slow the venous return of blood to the heart. Okay. Less blood coming in equals less blood going out, right? There are devices that they sell that say that, uh, like a rescue pod and a couple other things that kind of prevent that from happening. But the absolute best way to prevent that from happening are things that you could do, regard even if you don't have one of those things. Is you want to make sure you're just not working that. But if you just really work in that bag, if you see somebody else really work, ask them to say, oh, oh, you should breathe once every five to six seconds with an adult, right? And it should take a full second to provide that ventilation. And if I had one with me today, we would do this exercise, but I'm going to make it a point to bring it. But you could do this independent of me. If you're at work or somewhere else and you can get like a 
endotracheal tube. Hell, I'll give you an endotracheal tube. I ain't worried about that. But if you take an endotracheal tube and put it on a bag valve mask and you take a two-liter bottle, like it had Coke or what Mountain Dew, whatever your flavor is, but now it's empty, you fill that thing almost full of water, and you should practice your ventilations with that tube and that two-liter bottle of water because if you're doing it too fast and too hard, what's going to happen? You're going to get wet. If you're doing it right, you'll stay dry. It shouldn't be a... Now, I've done it in the past before I knew any better. Uh, but if you see, and you know you've seen it or you've done it yourself if you're already running calls, people get to work in them bags because they get excited, right? Slow down, one every five or six seconds, and it should be over a full second to deliver it. People providing ventilations in these videos are going too fast. So, anyhow... Keep that in mind. But if you're doing that, that's when you're going to incre really increase those pressures. You're decreasing the, the body's ability to return blood to the heart. And especially if you don't have a good patent airway, you can literally watch that stomach rise every time you squeeze that bag. And it's coming back. And it's bringing friends. Mouth-to-mouth, mouth-to-nose, mouth-to-mask ventilations. Listen, it just doesn't matter. As long as you understand, you have to have a good seal. You need to provide yourself protection. Have that barrier. Provide the ventilation over one second, once every five to six for an adult, a pediatric patient. It's once every three to five. Good rise and fall of the chest. Exhausted, relieved, or told to stop. We already talked about that. Two-person technique is best. It's the most effective way. See how the bag's inflated? It should inflate on its own. What's that? No. What's that? There's a button right there. Flow-restricted oxygen-powered ventilation device I was telling you about. Make a note. Go back and flip back in your notes that you took when we're talking about the FRO PVD. Put a note on there. You will not use on pediatric patients. Or in cases of chest trauma. 
talking about ventilators. We're not talking about CPAP yet. Oh. All right. Gastric distension occurs when artificial ventilation causes air to become trapped into the stomach. If you're ventilating too forcefully, too fast, either you don't have a good airway and it's going to go directly to the stomach, or if you're delivering too much, the lungs are eventually going to get filled, right? Overflow goes back, comes back up the trachea, right into the esophagus, down to the stomach. Gastric distension affects children more than adults. And again, reduce the risk by delivering each rescue breath over a full one-second period. Which is technically more than really one second, but that's what you need to know. Stomas and tracheostomy tubes, we kind of talked about those. There's that little plastic tube that'll be in their neck. What size is it? We're not talking about multi-lumen airways yet, because that's advanced. All right, foreign body airway obstruction. The CPR, right? What will you do if someone has a foreign body or something in their airway, but they can speak to you and they can cough? Do you go ahead and do the abdominal thrust? You encourage them to keep coughing and kind of keep your hands off of them, right? A fully occluded airway. How will you how will you tell that it's well how will you tell if it's fully occluded? They're not making any sound at all, right? Maybe drooling, faces starting to change colors, they've got that universal sign going on, grabbing their neck. Now, somewhere in the middle there, what if it's not completely occluded, but it's blocked enough to where it's not sufficient. Maybe you hear strider every time they breathe in. Should probably do something then, right? All right. Uh, obstructed uh, obstructed airway. They're conscious. It's an adult. What are you going to do? Huh? Abdominal thrust. How come we don't call it the Heimlich maneuver anymore? Because the Heimlich family wasn't getting paid. That's exactly right. So, you, is everybody familiar with the abdominal thrust, right? Those I know those that, that came to my CPR class, I know we talked about that for the adults, children, and the infants, right? What's the difference when it comes to an infant? If an infant is conscious, fully occluded airway, well, that's that back blows chest thrust, right? Once they go unconscious, you start what? With what exception? You visualize the airway before you ventilate, right? Because if you, through your chest thrust or back blows, or maybe just them going unconscious, whatever, and that relaxation of, of passing out may have allowed the object to free itself. So if it's in the back of the oral pharynx, and then you ventilate, what'd you probably you probably just blew it right back down in there, right? So you visualize before you ventilate every time. Don't do a blind finger sweep. That's no good. Okay. Is there anybody with any questions, anybody that doesn't remember what to do with these foreign body airway obstructions? 
In summary, we talked about all this. All right. Breathing 